0: This morning, we're reading from two passages in preparation to hear from Ryan. We're going to start in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. It reads like this He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, This is what is written, the Messiah. Would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Then our second passage is in Rome is in sorry, Hebrews chapter 10 starting with verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Steve. <laughs> Um, It's been a bit since I've been up here, and um, one of my favorite things that I've noticed here at Sunnybrook over the past couple of months is just how many new families have shown up for one reason or another, and so if, if I've not met you, I'm sorry, I would love to. My name is Ryan Vincent. I'm one of the pastors here at Sunnybrook, and it is my joy and pleasure to spend some time in the Word of God this morning and let God Probe our hearts and our minds to conform us into a certain and very important image. We are going to be in Hebrews primarily. Hebrews specifically, chapter 10, is where we're going to start. Uh, We'll be there most of the morning and we're going to end in Romans 6. Um, I do do wish that you all had the opportunity to be here in the next service when we do have four people making their public confessions of faith and uh, submitting to the Lord in baptism. Uh, knowing that we had the Stephen Ministry Commissioning this week, I'm like, okay, and I'm writing my sermon in my uh, in my office, and uh, we have a group thread that uh, kind of the, the Sunday morning team all, you know, we, we ask questions, make decisions, make plans for this room at this time every Sunday. And... Uh, it seemed like once a day, Drew Moss is texting, uh, we have another baptism, and, and I'm writing my sermon, and another, great, and then I'm having to, like, mark stuff out, we don't have enough time for all of this, but you guys, I'm sorry, you missed the baptisms, but you get the full thing, and then the next one, I'm just going to have to let the baptisms be sermon illustrations and skip reading the Bible, you know? Um, but here's what I want to do this morning. I want to ask this question. I, I felt like Lent was a phenomenal time this year. There was a lot of intentionality that went into it and a lot of feedback from you guys, as we prepared for Easter, and it was this slow build, and and we were talking about different ways to fast and different things from which to fast, and and it was so so fun to do that as a family. And you build and you build and you build, and it's it's 40 days, but it's six weeks. And don't don't ask me how we count. It just it adds up. Trust me, it adds up, kind of. And you get to Easter, and ta da, and Morgan has the the lobby just covered in sugar, and it's this big celebration, this this big feast. Since we've been fasting, we. We now feast and, and now we 're here today and, I, and I, I, was, I was here last week listening to Jim, and he he kind of brought this up that we have this this Christian shorthand uh, way, way, way back in the day in the ancient church, one of the the, the shorthand that, that the church would use to identify if you 're one of us is they would, they would have these, these creeds that they would keep secret, they would keep private, they would only teach them to the initiated but Our version of that today is on one Sunday a year, at least in this congregation, we'll say something along the lines of, the Lord is risen, and the response comes back, he is risen indeed. And the question I want to ask today is, so now what? Now what? You know, we've been trying um, with with some degree of intentionality to follow the, the church calendar. Uh, which begins in Advent, usually last Sunday in November, which crescendos at Christmas. And then we go into a different time. And, and then you have Lent, which crescendos in Easter. And that's really the first half of the year. So we've kind of done half the year. And then the back half of the year is just this long period. We're not necessarily in it technically yet until after Pentecost, but the time of ordinary time. And so it's you come all the way up to Easter, and then, then what? What do we do now? I've had two questions that have rattled around my mind over the last couple of weeks. Um, As we were preparing to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, I I I wondered, what What relevance does this have for the world that isn't going to come on a Sunday? Um, It's no longer as customary as it it may have once been for for non-believers to necessarily attend church on a Sunday out of cultural obligation. That's, that's becoming less and less the case. If far more comfortable, that's not us, that's not our thing, that's your holiday. So what relevance does the worship that you and I got to experience together have for a world out there? Um, and I don't watch much television, but I could probably guess what certain networks would have on uh, as they build up to Easter, questioning the historicity of Jesus as a person, questioning the validity of the claims about the resurrection. And they would have all of these alternative theories. Um, maybe he didn't actually die. Maybe they got the wrong tomb. Maybe he, uh, uh, they, the, the disciples stole the body. Maybe there was a, a substitute, which is a funny word to use. But And all those things are very easily dealt with in an apologetic sense. The questions themselves are kind of silly, and so the answers to respond to the silly questions are pretty basic. So none of those things hold much water when it comes to trying to refute the resurrection. So I think that to an outside world, what we celebrated last week does have some evangelistic value, but that's not what I want to spend our time doing today. I want to ask, what relevance does last week's celebration have in this room? Going forward, what does it mean to live the resurrection life? What does it mean to live together in light of the fact that Jesus died for us in our place, and then He didn't stay dead, but God glorified Him? What does that mean for us when, uh, when we consider what took place on that amazing Sunday? It, it altered history forever, which means that if we are to be followers of this history-altering person who is also God, then everything is connected to who he is. Everything that you and I are to sort out as far as being Christians is, by definition, connected to the person and work and identity of Christ. Uh, About a month ago, we had a, a new membership class. So we have people that were new to this church that wanted to come and, and see what we're all about, see what we believe, see how we practiced our faith, and, and see what it means to be a part of this community. And, and so um, I give my speech, Jim gives his speech, Paul gives his speech, and then at the end we just say, okay, now it's like open season. Let us know any questions about the church you might have. We, we may not have the answers right now, but we'll do our best to give you an answer. And there's some of the kind of standard fair questions. But, but one young lady raised her hand. And we have been talking by this point for almost three hours. And she goes, how would you guys define what it means to be a Christian? And I'm just like, I, I feel like we've been covering that this whole time. But okay, let me give you. And I said, just literally the word means little Christ. That's how we would define it. And so I said, that's why you're going to hear us, um, you know, for that that." particular Saturday morning, we had been going on and on about the primacy of the scriptures at this church. And they said, that's why you're going to hear us talk about him all the time, because everything comes back to who he is. And if you go through our, our discipleship curriculum that comes out of Men's Encounter or Women's Encounter and into School of Discipleship, you'll get this book that we wrote years ago that talks about one of the primary things you have to understand is Identity. I can talk to you all day about knowing the scriptures. I can talk to you all day about praying and doing other spiritual disciplines. I can talk to you all day about going on mission and living a morally upright life. But if you don't understand identity, all of that is built on the most shaky of foundations at best. So we talk about it at identity. So in terms of the Lord is risen, he is risen indeed. So now what? We, we have an identity question there. You see, if we can, if we can be clear on who he is, We can be far more clear on who we are to be as a result. So this is, the the vast majority of what I'm about to say is going to be pure reminder. I don't apologize for that. I think we just need to, we need to know this, we need to know this, we need to know this. And the first thing we need to know is we need to know the identity of Christ himself. Who is he? Now, the, the church has spent 2,000 years talking about who he is, and we will continue to spend all of eternity talking about and praising him for who he is. But in our passage today, which comes on the heels of what Jim preached last week, in Hebrews 10, we get two very important um, characteristics or qualities about the identity of Jesus that bear much weight on how you and I follow him throughout the year, even after Easter Easter. In Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19, the writer says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, which it's, it's kind of hard to overstate how, how interesting and, you know, even off-putting the claim to be bold to enter the sanctuary would just be startling to some of the earliest readers. But, okay, so we can and we can do so boldly. How? Through the blood of Jesus and then in verse 20, it says, He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that it is through his flesh. The writer's playing, doing some wordplay there, talking about the curtain in the Holy of Holies. It says, Through the curtain which is the flesh of Jesus poured out and given and sacrificed for you. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. And I'm going to stop there. We'll come back and finish that particular sentence in a second. But two things that the identity of Christ does is that it gives us confidence as we come catapulting out of Easter to follow him well the rest of the year, he gives us confidence for two reasons. First, he has created a new covenant. If you just let your brain kind of skim the biblical covenants, you have the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the uh, Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. You could even sprinkle some other ones in there. Those things were all important in their own right, in their own place, in their own time. But in Jesus, they all culminate into this new covenant. And I want to jump back a little bit in Hebrews to see how the writer describes this covenant as it relates to the old ones. So Jesus has given us and he has created a new covenant. In Hebrews 8, 6, it says, Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. One of the things that you you seldom see the New Testament writers do is to, to castigate the Old Testament. They just elevate Jesus above it all. It's not to toss it aside. It's not that it never had any value. It's just that at the advent of Christ, now that Jesus is here, nothing else really compares to what he's doing and what he's bringing about. His covenant is better, his promises are better. Shortly thereafter, the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 9, verse 15. It says, Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Not only is this new covenant better, it's eternal. And it deals with the sin problem that you and I face between us and God the Father. It deals with it permanently and completely so. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 says, this should give us great confidence. In addition to that, he is now our great high priest. He's not the first high priest. He is the only one who will always be high priest. And he is the only one who can do so as a divine human. He is the only perfect mediator. In Hebrews 6 20, it says, Jesus has entered there, entered into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever. It's not a temporary office, it's a forever office according to the order of Melchizedek. Back in chapter 8, says in verse 1, now the main point of what is being said is this, we have this kind of high priests, what kind? The kind who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. Uh, uh, Just a brief survey of Hebrews, and you quickly find that one of the most important themes to this writer is that. In Jesus, everything is amplified. In Jesus, everything is perfected. In Jesus, everything is culminated. In Jesus, everything is now made right with God. And he says, we finally have a high priest that can actually pull it off. We now have a high priest who can mediate on our behalf forever. Well, how does he do that? Well, one, he's God. Two, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. So if we can grapple with the identity of Christ himself as the only one who can deal with our rebellious hearts because he's inaugurated this new covenant and he can stand as the mediator between us and the Father, then he is the foundation for all of life in the church. What do we do after Easter? We look to who he is so that we can understand who we are. So we must know the identity of Christ. We must also know our identity in Christ to have an identity in Christ, to be so enveloped in his character that we are living from him instead of from ourselves. Hebrews 10 continues like this in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart, a full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So if you follow the let us, the let us, the let us, you have three of them. So the the writer is saying, okay, we've we've established... um, at least part of the identity of Christ. He's much bigger than any page can contain. But we've talked about who he is. Now, who are we as a result? And it says, okay, this is what we do. We draw near. We hold on to the confession of our hope. And we provoke one another to good works. Now, We could spend days talking about what it means to draw near, that we have access to the Father, that when you sing to him this morning, he will hear you. When we pray together, he will hear us, that he is not against us because we are in Christ. We could talk about that. There's a worshipful aspect to that. We could talk about the need to hold firm to our confession. We could talk about the need to preserve good doctrine and to fight for it and to not just let anyone believe anything they want and pretend like that's fine. We could talk about that for days on end. We could talk about what kinds of good works does God uh, insist on? What kind of good work is not trying to earn your favor before God, but working from the favor that he's given us through the blood of Christ? We could talk about that for days But one of the things that I want us to just notice here is that nowhere in this passage will you hear this stuff discussed in the singular. It's let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us provoke. There's this collective, corporate nature to living out life in Christ. It's almost like he is the head and we are the body that actually makes sense. It's almost like he is the bridegroom and we are the bride collectively. That's how the New Testament talks. And I wonder um, if the more we understand who he is, the more we can understand that we are indeed remade in his image and we are collectively so. And I wonder, you know, if we, if we talk about objections to the resurrection, and apologetics has value, but I wonder if the best evidence for the truthfulness of the resurrection is the Spirit working in us. The transformation that we see in this room. And we all go from individuals into, collectively, little Christ's. If that's what the the, the resurrection is, um, if if that's what it produces as a result, not only does it glorify the Lord and secure our eternity with him, but if it produces real spiritual life in you and I and we collectively live out what it means to be little Christs. The collective aspect of following Jesus um, can be bothersome to us. It can be quite bothersome. I don't know if it's necessarily an exciting thing for us to consider what it means to be so connected to one another that we collectively find our identity in him. And in some sense, our individuality starts to fade away. But can I offer just um, one thought, or actually a, a few thoughts, connected thoughts, on why I don't know if we should be so interested in The individual pursuit of godliness. I don't get that from the New Testament very often. I get this collective. The the pronouns are almost always in the plural. Do you think of yourself as strong and independent? Or do you consider your life altogether dependent on others and chiefly so on another? Another. Do you consider yourself strong and independent, or do you consider yourself altogether dependent on others? Um, I, I think that the, the 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 goodness of the gospel says that we have been purchased, we have been bought with a price. Um, there's a professor at Oklahoma Baptist University named Alan Noble. And uh, he's got a pretty interesting book I just want to read you a few little excerpts from his book and see if we can connect this to the work of the gospel and the outworking of Resurrection Sunday through the rest of our lives. This This is the first little excerpt. He said this. This is the fundamental lie of modernity, that we are our own. That we are our own. That our lives are uh, to do with what we please. And it just seems, as I as I look back through Hebrews and then all the chapters before it, and all the chapters after Hebrews 10, I see this call to self-denial and to finding life in Christ and life in the community, faith. He says, Modernity will tell you you are your own. He says, that's a lie says later on, he says, if you are not your own but belong to Christ, then the entire modern project of identity formation and expression is a sham. That means a major portion of our economy is based on the myth that we need to be someone unique. When I read this book, It doesn't ask me to pretend like I'm nobody or I'm unimportant, but it sure does demand conformity on every page. He says later on, belonging to God sets limits on our lives. Sometimes they're hard limits to bear. It's not easy to stand before God, even with grace. Moment by moment, we must set aside our sinful desires, even the ones closest to our heart, to live sacrificially. I do not want to lie to you. This is a difficult life. Maybe some hyperbole. Probably not much. There's a famous document known as the Heidelberg Catechism, and it opens with this question. And even if you've never read this particular document or been a part of a tradition that, that uses it in, their, uh, in their, their kind of church governance, you like, you've likely heard this question and this answer. The question is, what is your only hope in life and death? And the answer, taught to children from as soon as they can speak and buried in their hearts, is that I am not my own. But belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And I think that what Easter reminds us is that we have to live from these truths. And what Easter reminds us of is that, yes, we do have this new covenant. And yes, we do have a great high priest. And that comes with new responsibilities. And if I trust Jesus with my death, which those of us who have followed him in faith certainly do, if I trust him to glorify me in my death, how much more so should I trust him to submit to him in obedience in my lifetime now? Easter came and left us with renewed confidence in God's work in us through Jesus. We'll celebrate Easter again in one year. And I think it is one of God's gifts that the the celebrations come with incredible consistency and frequency to remind us afresh that it is his work, his resurrected life, his work sent through his spirit in us that continues to testify to the glory of God and the goodness of this gospel We have this great confidence, and uh, this, will, this will make even more sense in second service with all these baptisms lined up before it, but I do want to finish our time this morning in Romans 6. I think Romans 6 pulls together a lot of these ideas here in Hebrews 10 and buries it, pun intended, buries it into the identity of Christ. The Lord is risen, he is risen indeed, so what now? I think Romans 6, now. The Apostle Paul says this, What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him for the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. What do we do after Easter? So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I know this can sound esoteric and abstract. But it is the very word of God. And it is the very truth that gives life and sustenance to our souls. It's these kinds of words that the writer of Hebrews says that we should, we should provoke one another to do good works. What kind of good works are the ones that flow from this good book? Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Eugene Peterson died a few years ago maybe last year died a few years ago he had a famous i don't remember if it was a book title or just a famous line from the book but it it strikes me as a an apt description for life lived in the wake of easter when he prescribes the christian life to be one of a long obedience in the same direction And that's certainly not to work ourselves into the favor of God. It's working from the fact that in Jesus we already have it. Maybe Paul said it the best. Life lived after the resurrection. He says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Amen? Now, in light of these truths, which they're deep, one of the most profound things that we can do is to just worship. I know there's lots there about obedience and good works. Certainly a fan of those. But sometimes it's important to just marvel. Sometimes the best thing we can do is to just break down And see him for how beautiful he is. And every week we get the opportunity to do that as we celebrate remembering the sacrifice that brought about the new covenant, the sacrifice that mediates on our behalf as the great high priest. So, this is Christ's body given for you. Take and eat. This is Christ's blood poured out to bring about a new way, the only way.